0: Hello. Hey, man. You missed the production meeting this week.
1: What's, <laughs> yeah. What's going on, Sorry about man? that. I have my so,
0: suspicions that this house has kind of taken over.
1: So my framer was supposed to be, he was here yesterday, no show today, but I have all his tools at my house, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> we're behind schedule, supposed to move in. By the 1st, we've got about 12 days left. The studs are totally exposed. No sheetrock. The electrical isn't done yet. I'm not sure we're going to make it.
0: I mean, could I get 30 minutes? It's Wednesday night, man.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So the first thing I did in this house before I ripped everything out was I installed the internet. So actually, there's no excuse for me to miss that production meeting, but I will be there for the podcast.
0: So, one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode today, boss man, is to ask ourselves the question can you invest in property if you don't have that much money? Like, how does property investment stack up, not only as a portfolio strategy to diversify your income, but as a cash flow strategy? That's very good. I have nothing to say. <laughs> Thank you. That's very good. So, of course, we'll continue to check in at Camp Ian. Have you officially named your home yet, by the way?
1: I haven't. Is it going to have like a ranch name? You can't name it a ranch, I think. I asked Ron about this. We have about two acres. So you can't name it a ranch unless it's five acres, I believe. So it's called a ranchette, (laughs) technically speaking. But I don't think I could say the term ranchette too much. I
0: wouldn't go with that. Down to ranchette day, Ian. It doesn't work. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Paula Pant, who has a website actually that I'm a reader of. It's called affordanything.com. Back when I experimented with an Airbnb rental. It was Paula's blog that I stumbled upon, and it's got amazing content. I mean, she is super transparent, putting out every dollar, every figure, and demonstrating how she created a portfolio that generates cash flow for her on a monthly basis, and she started from scratch. It's pretty amazing, And You've seen the website. I mean, she's providing full breakdowns of how she's doing this. So we invited her on the show today to ask her how she did it and how she follows something called the 1% rule that she always applies before buying a new property. And just to give you a little bit of background about Paula, she started as a journalist in Colorado. We talked about this on the phone. She really like saved every penny for two years because she had this dream of traveling. But then when she came back from that massive trip, She decided, she kind of like hits home like it does for a lot of us that had a long-term travel experience. Like, oh gosh, I can never go back to a real job now. (laughs) I've been ruined. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like that was too good. And now I can't sit in a cubicle. And so it was real estate that she turned to and which I thought is pretty fascinating because it wasn't like she had a ton of money. So she started thinking that real estate could be a potential answer, a path to getting the lifestyle that she wanted. And that's where we'll start with the story. You may find yourself living in a
2: After I had you been back in the U.S. for not quite a year, I noticed a for sale sign that was in the yard of the house across the street. When I say house, I mean triplex. It was also a three unit building. And that particular building had been on the market for approximately 16 months at that point. The price had just been dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. I just did a back of the envelope calculation and realized that if I could submit a lowball offer and if it got accepted, that could probably be cash flow positive. At this point, I didn't know anything about real estate investing. I didn't know how to properly run an analysis analysis. I didn't know what a cap rate was. I didn't know what a gross rent multiplier was. I didn't know any of that. Where was the triplex and how much did it cost? Atlanta and $225,000.
1: Okay. And at this time, how much money do you have in your personal bank account?
2: My partner, Will, and I bought it together. Between the two of us, we had 12000 for a down payment. The rest of it we borrowed. The benefit of buying any multi-unit property is that you can qualify to get a loan as a primary residence. Most people, when you think of getting a primary residence mortgage, you think of a single family home. What year mm-hmm. was this? This was 2010.
1: Okay. So the financial mm-hmm. crash had already happened. Happen, you turned around and you said, Mom and Dad, you're right. This is why America is great because you can only have $12,000 in your bank account, no job, and buy a triplex. This is the American dream.
2: Well, the thing was, on paper, according to my tax records, I had run the same business for three years at that point because I had had freelance income. You know, when you go to a lender and you say, hi, I'm self-employed in the U.S., they want to see two years worth of tax records to make sure that you've been able to operate that business for at least two years. And you're
1: like, I'm not going back to work. This is a way for me to have income. And Mm -hmm. did you plan on living there as well?
2: Yeah. So by taking out a primary residence mortgage, you qualify just as you would if you were qualifying for just buying a house for yourself, as long as you live in it for at least one year, which I did. I actually lived in it for five years. So You're probably
1: uh, the exception to that rule, right? Most people just get their mail forwarded. and
2: Yeah, some people get their mail forwarded. Some people will live in there for one year. Some people, I actually know some investors in Colorado, because you can sell a home, if it's your primary residence, you can sell it after two years and not pay capital gains tax on the gain under a certain threshold. So I know some people who just every two years buy a house. And if you have a market where home values are increasing a lot, you know, that's a viable strategy. For me, I didn't want to speculate on what the market may or may not do in the future, which is why I put my focus on what is the cash flow today? What's the income? What are the expenses?
0: Are you thinking like this is a path to financial freedom for me if I can get into a house that I can rent it for more than the mortgage would be?
2: At the time that I bought my first property, I didn't know what financial freedom was. So at the time that I bought that first property, I thought this is some extra money, just a little bit of additional money that would supplement my income and, you know, help ensure that I never have to go back into a nine to five.
0: What is financial freedom? I have to ask the question.
2: To me, financial freedom is the point at which passive income from investments covers your cost of living with minimal input from you, yourself, with minimal input of your time. So my rental properties, at this point, I've got seven units on my website, affordanything.com. Every month I post like full transparency, exactly how much I earned. They're awesome. Thank you. They're really good. And I actually document my time. So on average, I spend about, these days, five to five and a half hours per month on this portfolio of seven units and bring in after all expenses, the net cash flow ranges somewhere between 3000 to 7000 at the high but you know between 3 to 7000 is the range and i'd say about 4 to 5000 is the norm per month
0: so you reached financial freedom how long did it take you to get there
2: actually it was surprisingly quick let's see i bought the first property in 2010 and i believe i probably reached the financial freedom benchmark around 2013 2014 somewhere in there for me at least I didn't really like consciously think about the fact that, oh, wait a minute, this is enough money for me to completely live on. So I could never write a freelance article again and I would still be fine. I just sort of started looking at that month after month after month performance of my investments. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, like Will and I can easily live on less than 5000 a month. Yeah,
0: this is cool. Hey, Ian, I just want to zoom in here to talk about this issue of not only utilizing capital to get involved in a business, but utilizing debt in the form of mortgages. Because most of the times on this show, we talk about not doing those things because I think me and you both are pretty risk averse when it comes to utilizing loans and debt. So what do you think about a strategy that relies at least in part on loans from banks?
1: It's interesting, Dan, you know, in our business, as you may or may not remember, in the beginning of our business, we took a small loan out for like $50,000 and it was our mission really, to pay that back as fast as possible. And I think we paid it back within the first six months. And then from there on, the business cash flowed everything. We were able to never have any debt in our business. So much so that we had a hard time getting debt. When we yeah, wanted <laughs> <laughs> we never took out any loans and part of the reason, yeah, was because we weren't worthy of credit because we had never had any debt. It's pretty, I don't know, you could say twisted the way that the debt situation works in the United States and the way that lenders evaluate people being eligible mostly in my experience for having debt you know i just went through this process buying this house I ended up having to go with a very small bank that understood my financial situation. The big banks did not want to lend to me because I didn't have any debt. <laughs> I recently had this situation
0: where my dad like called me because I was sending mail to my parents' house, and he called me up and he's like, "Looks like you got denied for a few credit cards. Is there like something going on that I should know about?"
1: <laughs> it's rich man, poor man thing. You know, Adam Carolla's got a great bit about this. Like, never wears shoes. Rich man, poor man. Has a boat parked in the front yard. Rich man, poor man. You know. And
0: And what's fascinating about this strategy of property investing is how little capital Paula needed to get started here and to build up a portfolio and part of that is by leveraging bank loans tip of the hat it's like sometimes to the people willing to take some risk it's the spoils go to them and it's a way to do more i know a lot of people would say like look you know she could easily i suppose pare it back down and have a smaller portfolio but now she's got a much wider exposure to not only some risk but also some upside
1: In our business, we didn't take these loans. And I think in some cases, we probably could have grown faster, especially on the inventory side of things, if we had just stacked up the inventory a little bit more. Because what would happen in our business, Dan, is we would go out of inventory because we didn't have enough cash. You know, Sales would be a little bit lower. So we would just kind of ratchet that up to eventually get to the point where we weren't going out of stock. But it took probably 40% longer because we didn't take out a loan. So I think a lot of ways we could have grown faster if we didn't take out a loan. But a lot of this, Dan, I think comes from like our middle-class upbringing, not wanting to be in debt because seeing people around us having crushing debt not being able to have mobility and the things that they wanted because they had to go to these jobs and they had to make these payments. But I think that business debt is a little bit different.
0: Let's get back to Paula because for any of the listeners thinking about these issues and what their risk preference is, I think it's fascinating. You can go to her website and we're gonna have all the links to this episode in tropicalmba.com slash property. So you can go there and check out the types of posts that we're talking about where Paula really lays out her portfolio. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so let's get back to how Paula thinks about her fundamental strategy and how she's worked that out over the years.
1: Is that house? You
0: may ask yourself, Where does that go to? And you may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have
2: I done? Yeah, absolutely. What I would say to anyone who's an entrepreneur, as I am, is you will have to wait until you have two years of tax history, not just two calendar years, but you have to have two tax returns that show income from the same business. So if you're currently organized as a sole proprietor and you want to reorganize into a single member LLC, be careful because depending on the lender, some lenders will understand what you've done, but other lenders might say, well, wait a minute, you changed business structures, therefore we're restarting the clock
1: smaller banks, those might be some of the people that you might want to seek out.
2: Not necessarily. Actually, I've had the worst luck with credit unions because their lending criteria was a lot stricter, at least the specific one that I went to, which was a particular credit union based in Atlanta. So I actually got rejected from them. And that's the other thing is as entrepreneurs, we know that you sometimes have to go through multiple rejections before you get the yes. And that's just part of getting to the goal. You know, that's true in business and that's true in real estate investing. So, you know, property number three, I couldn't get traditional bank financing. So I actually had to go find a private loan. So I found a private investor who was willing to, outside of the traditional banking industry, give me a loan. And it was, it was a 7% interest rate. That's very high in a you know current environment where people are taking out mortgages at 4%. But that extra 3% was the premium that I had to pay because at that point I couldn't find a bank that was willing to say yes. And as an entrepreneur, I'm not willing to take no for an answer and I'm gonna keep asking the question until I find a yes. A lot of people buy properties in the same way that I did when I bought my first one. A lot of rental investors don't know how to run the numbers. They don't know how to analyze and manage risk. What if the tenants trash the place? What if I can't find a tenant and this thing is vacant for a very long time? All of those what ifs are risk. Those are all risks that people are concerned about. I run spreadsheets and gather information that really tries to understand and analyze that risk and then make an informed choice based around that. And that has been a much more successful approach for me than buying a property in the hopes that maybe it'll go up over time.
0: One of the ways you do this is you have a philosophy called the 1% rule. Can you describe that?
2: Absolutely. So the 1% rule of thumb states that in order for me to even consider a property, the gross rent must be at least 1% of the purchase price. So if the home costs $100,000, it must rent for at least 1000 Now, I know that a lot of listeners right now are thinking, there's no way that any property could ever fit that criteria, You know, <laughs> particularly if you have listeners who are living in high-priced cities. To the people who have that knee-jerk reaction, there are a few things that I'll say. A building that has four units is typically not the same cost as four separate single-family homes. I have a reader in Portland, Oregon, who has been very successful at buying duplexes that meet the 1% rule. So that's number one. Number two is that buying fixer-uppers are another really good way to achieve this because oftentimes the cost of purchase plus the initial repairs required to get it rent-ready are less than the cost of buying it ready to rent. Number three, if you look at foreclosures, short sales, distressed sales, don't look at properties that are being sold by Joe and Jane Smith, who have all the time in the world to you know, accept multiple offers. And then number four, if all of those attempts fail, you can always buy properties that are not located where you live. I mean, I have since then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and all of my properties are in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Well, the reason I found your blog, Paula, is Airbnb. And you have a series of wonderful posts about the differences between long-term rentals versus Airbnb renting your properties. And a lot of our listeners are power users of Airbnb. And when I'm looking at the 1% rule doing my envelope, I'm all of a sudden thinking I can get a premium if I'm gonna turn my property into an Airbnb property. Am I going down a dangerous path by thinking that way?
2: Yes, and here's why. So let's go back to the definition of financial freedom, which is that the income should come from passive investments that require a minimal input of your time. Most of the time you spend is at the turnover stage. And as an Airbnb host, you have a lot of turnovers. There's a much greater time input. The I think the best kind of quick summary of the differences between being a landlord and being an Airbnb host, and I've been both, is that as a landlord, you're in the real estate industry but as an Airbnb host, you're in the hospitality industry. I documented all of the expenses that I had to pay as an Airbnb host that I would not have had to pay as a landlord, You know, such as consumable goods, dish soap, sponges, soap, shampoo, electricity, internet, cable, all of the utilities that I covered. I documented all of those additional costs. I still made more money as an Airbnb host. I made about an additional $600 a month more, but I also had to put in a lot more of my own time. Even when I tried to outsource, there was still a lot more management responsibility on my end. For example, there was one time when the cleaner just no-showed. Like I'd hired a house cleaner and she just didn't show up. I had a same day turnover. So I had a process by which guests could access the key and check in without needing me. That check-in part was automated and the cleaning was outsourced. I had on paper done everything right, You know, in that four-hour workweek style of eliminate, automate, delegate. But when the cleaner no-shows, it's on you to figure out what to do. And that's a problem that as a landlord, I don't have because I'm not responsible for house cleaning. You want the option to make your activity passive if you choose. So buy a property if it works as a traditional rental on a one-year lease. And then if you choose to rent it out on Airbnb and make additional money, awesome. That's a bonus. But you're not relying on it. You're not shackled. To
1: it. Yeah, I'm really curious, Paula, to kind of start to dig into these numbers so people can understand what your portfolio size looks like, what your debt looks like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You've already kind of disclosed a little bit about your earnings, 3 to $7,000 a month. What would you estimate the value of your properties to be at and how much of that is debt at this point?
2: When I evaluate equity gains, I look at what I refer to as total acquisition price. So the price that I paid to purchase the property plus upfront repairs to make it rent ready. And so the total acquisition price of my entire portfolio is $690,000 approximately. Okay, so that's purchase plus repairs, initial repairs. Right now, and again, it's value is what a person is willing to pay at point of transaction. I want to kind of emphasize to the listeners not to get too caught up in the whole like, oh, but the value will go up, right? Because we're talking volatility on the line. But right now, based on MLS, Zillow, HomeSnap, and Trulia, I'll look at all four of those. They all have estimates of what the home should cost. I'll look at all four of those estimates. With that as my methodology, my estimate of the current market value is $935,391 for the portfolio as a whole. So basically, I bought them for about $700,000. And the current value today is about 935000 And that's over
1: roughly. a spread of how many years?
2: So the first property that I bought was in 2010. So that would have been six years ago.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you
0: manage debt versus cash?
2: Absolutely. So my take on that is actually very conservative. I don't believe that you should maximize your leverage.
0: And by maximizing your leverage, you mean taking as much loan from the bank as possible so that you can buy more properties? Exactly. And why not? I mean, it seems like a decent idea if the rental income is covering the mortgage. You might make your monthly income go up 50% in a matter of a year.
2: Sure. Yeah. It's all about risk management. The goal is not just to pursue rewards in a vacuum, but to pursue rewards relative to their risk context. And every person's risk tolerance is going to be different. And it's funny because there's a little bit of, among a certain type of real estate investor, there's almost a pissing contest over who can just acquire, leverage, acquire, leverage, acquire. On one end of the extreme, you have that. And if you talk to those investors and you say, well, I'm intentionally taking fewer loans than I could qualify for in order to mitigate risk. They'll often respond like, well, if you hate risk, just put your money in a CD, which is not a logical response. So the current outstanding balance on all of my mortgages combined for the rental properties is just shy of 470000 It's 468891
1: Cool. So, just to give a snapshot, then you've got in about six ninety into these properties. Estimated values around nine thirty-five, and then your estimated mortgage is around four seventy. So, I'm just doing some quick back in the napkin math here, and it looks like over six years that would be about seven percent in gains. Is that about right?
2: I haven't done the math, so I'll take okay. your word for it. Again, do th- I don't like to focus on value because I more or less can't control those equity gains. You know, I can try to make smart renovations, etc., but market gains are outside of my control. And so I don't focus there. I focus on the cash flow.
0: Maybe I could represent a hypothetical member of our audience, someone who, say, has between fifty dollars and $100,000 in the bank from their business, and they don't have a lot of time to you know, start another one, they want to stay focused on it. Would they be someone that would be an ideal person to get into the real estate investment game? And if so, how might they get started with that money?
2: That depends on your own stomach, only you, only the listener can answer that question, but you'd want to take a very conservative approach when you first dip your toes in. That being said, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably okay with at least a little bit of managed risk. And then what was the second question? Like
0: if you have between fifty dollars and $100,000, how do you get started with that? Do you just buy a house, one of these inexpensive houses outright and start renting it? Or would you go get a few mortgages or how would you approach it?
2: When you say, okay, do I buy a house in cash or do I leverage into multiple properties? Fundamental. you're asking a question about strategic growth, and that's not where you want to start. Strategic growth comes later. You start by first understanding what makes a good deal and what makes a not good deal. And that breaks down into kind of two subparts is Understanding the numbers and understanding the physical structure and understanding the risk profile of that neighborhood because different neighborhoods are going to have different inherent levels of tenant risk.
0: Or what I'm hearing from you is when you know what's working, when you figured out that this works, then that's when you dump money onto it.
2: Yeah. You know, and whether you choose to borrow the money that you dump or only dump cash out of a savings account, that part is up to you. But don't ever buy something because you have 50 to 100,000 in the bank and you need to put it somewhere. You know, buy something if it's a good deal that will give you good cash flow. And again, it goes back to that cash flow emphasis, because frankly, I think that's easier to calculate because cash flow is present day returns, not some projected speculative hope of potential future value. If you're just
1: focused primarily on the cash flow, which it seems like you are, Mm -hmm. how do you project out your risks and what are your risks?
2: Risks would include, number one, there's... Neighborhood risk. Both properties and neighborhoods are broadly classified as Class A, B, and C. Class A is where you would tend to get better quality tenants, you know, with stronger incomes, just generally less hassle. Class C is where you might tend to get tenants who maybe have a spotty employment record, bad credit, they can be tougher neighborhoods, you might have more turnovers. Class B is somewhere in the middle between the two. And like all investments, the reward is tied. To the risk typically. So, you know, a class A neighborhood you'll usually get lower returns but lower risk class C typically higher returns in an ideal situation if you can manage it well you may get higher returns but there's also higher risk so that is one of the first things that you'll want to consider is what zip code am i going to focus on and is that a class A B or C zip code and then on top of that you know you'll want to once you kind of narrow your search into a specific location like a specific zip code you'll want to assess The structural physical risk of the property itself, how much deferred maintenance does it have? And when you're running your equations, when you're running those spreadsheets, you don't want to just assume one rental price point you want to run scenarios with a whole bunch of different variables if it rents for 1200 a month and the maintenance costs this much and the occupancy is this much then these will be the returns and that's the worst case scenario on the other hand if it rents for 1800 a month and maintenance is this much and occupancy is this much etc cetera, etc cetera, then the returns are here and that's when you know what that range is and once you calculate that range Then if you can live with the worst case scenario, move forward.
0: Paula, can you, for people that are thinking about getting into this, I might be one of them. What are some of the F-ups, like the mistakes that you've made during this process that you can help me out
2: with? Mistake number one was not knowing how to properly analyze a property before you buy it. Like I said, when I bought my first property, that was the first of many mistakes I made. I didn't know how to calculate cap rate, and I certainly wasn't calculating that, that under a wide variety of variables.
0: What's cap rate?
2: The short answer is that your cap rate is your net operating income relative to the purchase price of the house, which means your income after operating expenses, but before debt servicing, as it relates to the cost of the investment. Cap rate relative to risk is the single most important criteria when you're buying a house. It's the indicator of how good your returns are going to be. The second mistake that I made, and this is a very common one among beginners, is not valuing my time. And I mean that in a literal sense. When Will and I bought that triplex, we reasoned that if we did all of the repair work ourselves, then the cost of those repairs would just be the material. There would be no labor cost. We made the mistake of thinking that math depends on the identity of the individual performing the task. And that is just creative accounting. It's BS accounting. We also made the mistake of renting to a friend, and I would not, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend that. That's one of the fastest ways to end a friendship.
0: Do you have any secret heuristics that you use to profile potential renters Something where you're like, oh, this person, you know, clearly hasn't shaven in in four days, so I'm not going (laughs) to rent to them. Or That's called discrimination. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm asking. How do you discriminate?
2: (laughs) No, as a kind of broad benchmark, I usually look for income that is at least three times the monthly rent and good credit. That being said, you know, there are exceptions. I had one applicant who had no credit. She'd never opened a credit card, she'd never taken out any loans. So, you know, good credit is not a requirement. It's sort of a general rule of thumb, but if a person doesn't meet it, you look at the length of their employment, you look at their income, you know, you look at all of those to see whether or not they're qualified. You call Not just the current landlord, but also the former one, because if they're a bad tenant, Mm. the current landlord has incentive to give them praise so that he or she can get rid of them. So you call the former landlord who has no skin in the game.
1: Dan,
0: let me ask you a question. Wait, hold up. I got to do my job first. Okay. You got to let me do my job. TropicalMBA.com slash property. We want to hear your thoughts. I think Paul's brought a lot of interesting things to the table. Certainly has inspired a lot of discussion between me and you. We're going back and forth, man. It's just behind the curtain. You got to check out this blog, affordanything.com. She is a really, really great blogger. Appreciate her coming on the show. Thanks, Paula. So, all right, my job's done.
1: (laughs) Here's the question I want to ask you. This property investing, real estate stuff, I just got into it a little bit and I wouldn't necessarily even call mine investment because it might go boom. Who knows? But Would you rather have a portfolio of investments in, I don't know, I think Atlanta could be a cool city, you know, one of these second tier cities, so Atlanta, Charlotte, Austin, something like that, or would you rather have a blog? You know my answer to that, that's an appropriate question. I think
0: what Paula's doing with her blog is brilliant. And what a wonderful asset she's building. Huge list of people that are following this portfolio, that are curious about it, that are sharing their information, making her portfolio stronger and her knowledge stronger. So what a great way to diversify, right? And that's really an opportunity for anybody growing a business nowadays. If you're brave enough to share it online, a couple people might steal your ideas or tell you you're a dummy. But Probably many more people are going to share how you can improve that business, how you can learn more. So I think it's a brilliant diversification strategy. The thing that jumped out at me about this is how she started with this. It's stunning to me, really, frankly, like I wouldn't mind having a portfolio like this. But for me, I still think it would be something that I would do sort of at the end of my portfolio as a primary business. I just haven't seen that much. It's amazing that she's made it work for her. So my question to you, boss man, is are you going to build out your real estate portfolio? And if so, what have you learned today that might instruct that?
1: You know, everybody has their own thresholds for, you know, risk tolerance and things like that. And for me, I spent a lot of time reading about the real estate markets and potentials and things like that. And I just got involved. But it's funny, like I have very little stomach for this kind of investment, especially with all the debt that's required and would be required of me too. I just feel like there's a certain amount of fragility to this kind of investment that I just don't lean towards. I think in the future, like you said, it's kind of for me at the end of the investment strategy. Like I think it would be great to make some bets on things like this, like especially if what happened in California happens in Austin or something like that, you know, where people in mid-level homes with a couple of mid-level homes that have essentially retired on their investment like they did in California. Things like that are really appealing to me. For me, I'm not sure if this type of investing really checks the box for the kind of fundamentals that I'm interested in in a small business.
0: So you're scared. That's what I'm hearing from you. <laughs> I'm scurred?
1: <laughs> well, not only am I scurred, but here's the thing, and I think this is really important to talk about. When you look at the numbers behind this type of business, I think that there's a lot of ways that you can earn ten thousand plus dollars a month, and I would prefer to do that online without so much debt. I mean, I just think over the years, Dan, we've learned there's so many ways to make a dollar. And for me, like I personally don't have the stomach to make a dollar this way. Although I see people and Paula having great success with it. It'll
0: be interesting to see how it
1: plays and we're going to be able to watch, which is the best part. Popcorn in hand, buddy. Just shoveling it in my mouth. So on the side of my seat. Let us know what you think. Tropicalmba.com slash property.